Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, or rated us. Pause your recording and give us a five-star rating and review. I think I inverted those things, but whatever. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, an Anglican priest. But today we have a very special guest. and I'm very excited to speak with him. We would like to welcome Father Ben Jeffries. Father Ben grew up in England, but he moved to the United States in 1999. He graduated from Wheaton College, Illinois in 2004 with a degree in communications and theater and a minor in theology. But that minor in theology was important because it sprouted into something bigger. He attended Neshota House Theological Seminary uh, and married uh, a lovely bride in 2013, was ordained in 2014. He is currently rector of the Church of the Good Shepherd in Opelika, Alabama. And you may correct me if I've mispronounced that town. Ben is married and the proud father of three daughters. And most importantly, I want to say that uh, Ben is a thoughtful young man um, whose writing can be found at North American Anglican. And I really highly recommend his journal entries, um, very thoughtful and uh, have been formative for me as I've been reading them. Father Ben, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for that uh, warm welcome and introduction. Um, yeah, doing good. That's wonderful. So I have sort of, um, it's been a one-way relationship. I've known you from afar for a while, having, having read you and uh, appreciated uh, your, your thoughtfulness, your insight, um, your faith, your faithfulness, and all of that. Um, uh, you've been ordained um, mere, a mere seven years, so you seem to have done a lot in that time. Can you tell us a bit about your ministry? Hmm. Um, I heard once uh, from a bishop that uh, if you put together all the um, different denominations, that uh, 90% of those ordained to the pastorate, like in Methodism, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, whatever, 90% uh, don't make it to five years. Oh, wow. So when I made it to five years, I was like, <laughs> okay, phew, like, I'm going to make it. Um, but yeah, so um, uh, I've forgotten your original question. <laughs> um, what have I done in ministry? Is that what you're saying? Uh, just broadly, can you tell us a bit about your ministry? Yeah. yeah. So um, I serve a small church here in Opelika. Uh, that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you. Although it was a noble effort. And um, I, um, one of the um, books we read sort of very incidentally in seminary was this um, sort of softly fictional work called The Archbishop's Test. Um, written in like 1913 or something and the idea was like it was sort of in the heyday of like when churches were going just bonanza with programming mm. kind of like you know church culture we're very familiar with now of course but really blew up in the late 19th century 
Um, and this, this book sort of had this, the conceit was this sort of burned out priest was told by this sort of sage mentor, just do everything in the prayer book, nothing more and nothing less. And sort of, the, and then in the story, it becomes really life-giving to the priest and the parish slowly grows and everyone kind of deepens their life in the Lord. And, and but the moral of the story really sunk home to me. Um, and when I have, as I sort of, have sort of sought to understand like the ministry that any ordained priest is called into and then sort of what particular niche I might occupy according to where and with, with what the Lord has called me, um, that sort of idea of the prayer book being the animating principle, the rule of life uh, above every, for the parish, above everything, um, and to sort of trust the slow growth that will come from that and not be pandering after sort of incessantly new programming or stressing out about this, that, or the other, but just at, is the scripture being preached? Are the prayers being prayed? Are the sacraments being ministered? Am I seeking to care for the people as I would my friends and my brothers and sisters? Um, and then kind of leaving the rest up to God. And so the, the fruits of that is we, the churches I served have not grown fast. They've grown slowly, but they still grow a little. And the glory is God's because there's nothing. I'm not trying to bring any special spice, really. It's just the Anglican way as shaped by the prayer book. And then as the Lord leads people deeper and deeper into it, so that the Holy Spirit um, uses the ancient disciplines to change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Mm. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about your call to ministry? Like what that uh, felt sure. like, how that came? Yeah, sure. Um, it was uh, very slow and gradual. I graduated college having no sense of what I wanted to do career-wise. I um, thought possibly in college that I was going to be a, an actor, like a stage actor. Um, but then I realized right before I graduated that I didn't want to do that. <laughs> because um, I didn't want to do sort of slipshod, junky storefront plays for 20 years before making a penny getting to do the things I love, like the great classics of the American or Shakespeare classical repertoire or whatever. So um, so then I kind of wandered around aimlessly for a number of years. Um, and then one thing led to another and I ended up getting a job at a psychiatric hospital doing intake counseling. And that accomplished two things. One, my faith, which had really cooled on the other side of Wheaton um, uh, was brought alive again as I saw sort of the brokenness of um, the world and the sort of, you know, one of the questions I'd ask everyone that came in the door is like, has anybody ever abused you? And just to hear mm. the number and the grade of answers to those questions day in, day out, it's like, oh, the world needs a savior. Oh, and I need a savior. And so the Lord used that, that sort of the, the darkness um, that was revealed in that. Um, to draw me back to himself and that sort of made me want to share my faith at the hospital which I couldn't do in that setting and so I was like well maybe if I was a chaplain I could so I did a, C a unit of CPE which was wonderful I was a great learning curve um, it was awesome and then but in the midst of it I was with lots of patients on heavy sedation and they were about to die and they'd be like well I've been a good person and I'd be like oh no no that's not the gospel wait no, that's <laughs> but then you know then they fall asleep because of the sedation and I was like ah oh, I wish I could have catechized them for like five years before they were dying. And then that is sort of dawned on me like, well, that's what a pastor does. And so I lived at that time about five minutes from the show house. Grew up in hmm. my high school is in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Um, shout out O-Town. And um, the, uh, I, I thought, well, hey, there's a seminary right here. I won't even have to move across the country. And I, I didn't know anything about churchmanship divisions, high church, low church, whatever. All I knew of Anglicanism was what I knew from Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a wonderful church. And um, 
but I knew nothing, but I went in still kind of somewhat aggressively anti-sacramental. Like I thought mm -hmm. that they were, you know, as low as you could possibly be, sort of like lower than Zwingli himself. Um, and then it was a cold shock to discover a lot of things. <laughs> but hmm. through the course of three years at Anna Shoda House, came to be convinced that a higher view of the sacraments than I held, in fact, the Catholic view, um, little c Catholic uh, in common parlance, was actually the faith of the apostles and their descendants and the scriptures. And I just hadn't been taught it as a child growing up Baptist, but um, it was in fact, no, it wasn't an addition to the faith. I had just been previously used to a subtraction from the faith. Mm. And so that was just a big sea change. Um, and uh, yeah, the sort of the life at Neshota House based on the prayer book of, you know, daily office every day and um, work in prayer, kind of that Benedictine DNA um, was very, very formative. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we'd like to move on to uh, the gospel uh, in just yes. a moment, but, I, but I'm uh, itching to ask your opinion. <clears throat> um, uh, we, uh, we have a new prayer book in the last two years. And in, in my parish, we are currently going through an adult um, education class on it. And um, it's actually created a lot of uh, excitement and energy, um, uh, a, a desire to really dig in deep and, and re-engage with our, our heritage. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, how, um, where, where are you in the 2019 prayer book? <laughs> um, where am I on it? Like, what are my opinions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, are, you, uh, are, are, you, are you pleased with it? Are you yeah. pleased with it with an asterisk? Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm kind of an unabashed fanboy. All right, <laughs> so, wonderful. Yeah, I was. Um, I, I got to serve on the team that helped produce it. And um, I think it holds together the tensions of Anglicanism today very well. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not, there are a few things where I'd say, oh, this, I don't like this bit in particular, but most of anything that I might not like in particular is optional. And so not, or whatever. So like the rubric says may, but the, um, in terms of it's in contemporary idiom, like there's just none of the uh, social obstacle that Elizabethan English and these and nows presents to many, not all, but many. Um, and it presents the sort of deep, the, the same theology of all the classical prayer books. And yet with a sort of um, a bigger sort of embrace of things that have grafted in and truly grafted in, like they aren't, they are no longer foreign objects into Anglicanism, out of the evangelical tradition, out of the Pentecostal tradition, out of the ritualist tradition. And these things that, um, while they can't be found at the level of the letter in the 1662 prayer book, they are a part of our DNA now, like the liturgical movement of the 20th century, etc. So I think it's a really able synthesis of the many different things that are under the Anglican roof. And personally, I love using it. I love praying that I pray the offices. I mean, I follow it to the letter. I use nothing else in our parish, in my own private life. Um, it's a rich treasure house, I think. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Last Sunday um, at our adult ed, um, there was almost the um, Josiah in the rubble of the temple sense as I saw our people looking at morning prayer. Like, really? We, we could do this? And we could do this every day? And this could shape and form us? So I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, it's remarkable how much I, I, there's, I mean, it's, I'm not dunking on the 79 prayer book, but um, morning prayer was, was really dramatically altered. Like, so if you went to a 1662 Evian song and then a 79 morning prayer, you'd be like, what, what's, you'd be hard pressed to see the continuity. So yeah. I love the continuity and we could go on along and like, we could go on at length uh, 
um, one speculating about which prayer book is the greatest. <laughs> um, but, oh, speaking, Christopher, of which is the greatest. Hmm, nice transition. This week's gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Ben, do you have some, some thoughts that you'd share with us? Sure. Um, like a, uh, a good uh, Anglo-Catholic, I try and regularly uh, select the gospel text from the lectionary to preach on, so I've been... Um, uh, meditating on this text for in expectation of, of Sunday. Um, and so the few things that have really uh, caught my ears this time uh, hearing it, uh, one is um, the reminder actually that in wanting to be the greatest, their ambition was actually good, right? In terms of the thing they were seeking to have, like to actually be great in the kingdom of God, like would that you know, so I think they weren't trying to be great in the world's eyes. They were wanting to be greatest in the kingdom. Um, they were just mistaken as to the means of how to get there. Um, sort of paralleling it on to when the Lord says in elsewhere in the, the other gospel, um, the, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? And so, and then one of the other thing, another thing that really struck me this time was that Jesus doesn't just say like, be lowly. He actually then, which is, you know, as an actor, it's hard to just, this one says, be sad. It's like, well, I don't know how to just be sad, but how do I like strive for something that makes me sad? Um, and that's what makes the difference in good acting and bad acting. <laughs> Similarly, I think in the Christian life, like having something to do. So then when the Lord says, you know, you must be low and a servant. Okay. And then he takes like the socially lowest ranking person, presumably they're in Caponia, maybe it's Peter or Andrew's house or something like some known family member grab some nephew or who knows what, like kid who um, traditionally, actually there's a sort of pious tradition that that child was Ignatius of Antioch, uh, who got hmm. by the Lord. Um, it's, you know, like all traditions of that court, of that caliber, you know, who knows if that's exactly right. But um, but then he takes the lowest, someone of very low social standing, perhaps the lowest in the room um, and says, you should serve this one. And so like, not just like be lowly, but if you serve the person who you think is lowest, then you will actually be the lowest. 
and then you'll actually be the greatest. And so he's kind of giving a practical thing to do to actually embody that um, rank he enjoins them to take, which is the rank of lowest. Um, and, um, and I've just been thinking this morning on just the trajectory that sets for things which we can somewhat, we think are instinctive a bit more now, which were not in antiquity, like paying attention to children and caring for them. Like I think about Sunday school at church or whatever, like this idea that that's a meaningful act um, is actually a, out like sourced from a go the gospel principle of serve the lowest. It's not instinctively valuable as we see in like antiquity, you know, just exposing children and all the disregard for children. Um, that we've now kind of this gospel truth is actually kind of underwrites a kind of instinct in you know late Christendom as we find ourselves in. Um, anyway, so I just thinking about that kind of parenting, and um, I dug up some quotes from I found something about John Chrysostom talking about parenting, and I was really touched by how tenderly he spoke about like as a father and a mother, like you kind of I always kind of love all of the past as like oh they were really rough parents or something. And it was all full of tenderness and sweetness. And, and really seeing that as a cultural change from the pre-Christian era to the era where the Lord says, hey, care about even, even the kids who are the littlest, the least socially ranking people. Um, so yeah, so out of the gate, that's kind of what I've been doing on in, in, in preparation for, for this week's seven. Yeah. Yeah, good, good stuff. Yeah, and as always, we catch uh, this reading... Uh, we always have to catch it out of context. And so what I attempt to do is try to put it in context. Yes, and and yeah. so this is not, of course, the first time that Jesus teaches about his, uh, his death. Um, it's, mm. it's not that long ago that he teaches this and Peter responds and re uh, rebuking Jesus. Um, and here um, it's interesting that, that Peter's not so bold as to rebuke him here, but also, it's clear that they still don't understand what he was saying, mm. and but there's this fear to ask him, um, which is just an yeah, interesting like, oh, way of putting he's it. Saying, he's saying that thing again. Uh, I, they, they just don't <laughs> yeah. ask him. <laughs> yeah, there it goes again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so I I don't have any like profound point to make in in their fear to ask him, except um, just to point it out that that um, here this time around uh, they aren't rebuking him, but yet they're not like well, Jesus, like, this doesn't make sense to us, like this form of messiahship. Um, and so like, he just continues his teaching anyway, because that's who Jesus is. And, and so he's like, okay, so how about this then? Um, what were you guys talking about? Knowing what they were talking about. And they're a little bit sheepish. Um, again, like Ben, you said, it's, it's, it's not bad to be the, the greatest, but there is some sense of shame of not wanting to to, to share with Jesus, like, oh man, we're arguing. It, it kind of reminds me of, of when uh, the mother of, of James and John is, right. like, like goes to Jesus like, hey, in your kingdom, can my sons be at your right and left? Um, like, you know, not quite understanding like what the kingdom looks like. And, and again, the, the, what does the kingdom look like? Well, it looks like, um, it looks like the king laying his life down for his people, right? Um, and, and of course, resurrection is part of that. But first comes death. First comes the cross. And, uh, you know, last week we talked uh, at length about uh, the, the Feast of, of Holy Cross. Um, and so that's, that's a continual theme, this idea of, of, of the, the way up being down, of, of Jesus um, taking the path of the lowly, uh, of, of taking the path of shame. Uh, cursed is one who hangs on a tree. Um, and, uh, so continuing in this, as, as Ben pointed out, um, 
children in, in that day were not considered like it's totally opposite today where we 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 uh you know being being a great parent is 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 lauded today where back then uh i i was reading in in one commentary how uh if if you were if it was perceived that you were going to die soon and you wanted uh, to pass on your your money, you might adopt an adult to give it to. <laughs> like children, were like yeah, like they, they weren't they were considered like not real people <laughs> until adulthood. Um, and so, uh, it's quite a stunning statement to say. Um, you know, look at the 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 biggest outcast, the least important person in this room. Um, this is what the kingdom looks like is, is it means valuing them. Um, and, and, uh, in doing so it's, uh, some scholars don't point to, you know, Jesus, this being a divinity thing here, but, but, you know, more an emissary thing where, where like receiving Jesus means receiving God himself. Um, but I, th I think we could see that here where it's like, um, receiving the child because you're receiving me. And if you receive me again, having, uh, wide respect, a variety of responses as, as he does his ministry. Some people believe in Jesus and some people reject him. And he's saying, when you receive me, you receive the one who sent me, which of course is my father in heaven. So Kirk, what do you see here? Uh, so this brings to mind uh, and the, the eminent 1985 film. I'm kidding. I, I, I don't think it did well. I was just looking up an IMDb. Um, the fourth wise man. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Have any of you seen this? This is interesting. Oh. Uh, so we all know, actually, we don't know, right, that there were three right. wise men, there were three gifts, right? What this movie presupposes is that there was a fourth, um, a, a man named Artaban, uh, who um, along the way never makes it to Bethlehem. Um, he gets waylaid at a leper colony, and he, he's sort of angry that he's, that he's kind of stopped there, but... but um, he begins to do just kind of care for them and, and uses his wealth and whatever to care for them. And days become weeks, becomes months, become years. And he becomes bitter, embittered because he wasted his life. Um, his calling was to follow the star um, to the newborn king, and he didn't. And uh, at the very end, spoilers, it's, it's 1985, so if you didn't see it, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, he does see Jesus, and there's this there's this sense where oh my gosh, okay, um, I didn't do like I in some ways I was true to the king by doing precisely this thing. I mean, it's inter well, interesting. Kirk, I, th I think it was more than that, wasn't it? That like he was angry because he didn't get to see Jesus, right. and they're like, no, you did see Jesus right. because like yeah, in serving the least of these, you know, kind of in the Matthew twenty five sense. Yeah, of, of yeah, like, yeah. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Yeah. So what you what uh, Father Ben, you pointed out um, that. That there's there, there's something new in the Christian ethic, um, that, that that suddenly these new Christians begin to toil away in hospitals and schools, these new kinds of institutions, caring for um, categories of people that just were not valued, mm. um, and I think it remains a mark even as it, it feels like Christendom is kind of washing away under our feet. Um, the whole concept of, of hospitals and schools and, and, and the idea that we would devote our lives. I'm a teacher and uh, I just today, I walked out of my last period um, and uh, my, my students were writing essays and like they hate essays. And so like, it wasn't a fun period. I didn't get to have fun teaching. And it was just, I was taskmaster, like walking the aisles, like um, redirecting kids if they were kind of daydreaming or whatever. And I'm like, 
did like did I do anything today? Did I make a difference? Um, but like I'm toiling away, you know. And um, this itself is sort of a, a Christian thing, right? Like, um, and it was a new idea. And thank you, Father Ben, for kind of pointing that out. That caring for these whole categories of people, children, whatever. This is this is what our Lord um, admonished us. Christopher, yeah. you're nodding. You have you have a follow up thought or? No, Ben, ben does. <laughs> the good work. Um that the gospel has done in sort of changing the uh, orientation of a culture towards children. Um, nevertheless, like our flesh always uh, resisting the gospel. I mean, I was, it, one of the things that struck me in thinking about this passage too is even though we value our own children sort of perhaps in, with more dignity, that other people's children right. um, is still still struggling category. I mean, I, mean, I serve a small church and I mean, anyone who tries to recruit volunteers for the nursery or the <laughs> school and church knows that actually like drumming up compassion for children is still like a labor against the flesh because it's still like, yeah, but it's, you know, thankless. So they're grumpy or you don't see the fruits right away. And it's so much more fun to talk with the adults. You know, like we still aren't actually valuing the, like the flesh still resists valuing at some level. They're still, we still reckon them, reckon, reckon them as the least of these. Um, and all should therefore all the more be served. But it's, it's, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well observed. Yeah. Yeah. Any other final thoughts, gentlemen, before we uh, we look at our theology today? Our theology segment today is on biblical hermeneutics and inerrancy. So first, let's uh, attempt to define our terms. So uh, Ben, these may be unfamiliar terms. We have uh, kind of a wide uh, spectrum of, of listenership. Um, what, what does the word hermeneutics mean? Um, the strategy with which you read and understand the Bible. Yeah, and, and why is this uh, important um, for your your um, for your average Christian? Um, so we all already have a strategy when we crack open the page, the actual book, whether we are conscious of it or not. We have a strategy. So someone who is just randomly opening the book and looking for divine guidance about their business deal that day, asterisk, not a that good in itself is a strategy, right? <laughs> it's actually a strategy, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, however you're approaching it, when you're reading a text. You might think that it's just me in the text, but actually the fact if you listen to sermons ever on a Sunday morning or on podcasts or whatever, one of your strategies is I need other people to sort of help me understand the word or books, or whatever. Like we we actually have functioning strategies already. So hermeneutics is just saying, okay, what actually are the operating strategies and naming what is in play and trying to make it better, you know, and better meaning to draw us closer to the communication in the text. Uh, rather than further away so using it as a magic book for what business deal to do <laughs> not drawing closer is not will not take you as close to what god is trying to tell you 
um, as better strategies of interpretation. Um, like you mentioned, you know, just a few moments ago about, well, what is the context of this passage of Mark 9? That is a hermeneutical strategy to look at broader context that's universally useful for understanding the meaning of a text. Um, and so, and there's a whole number of those sorts of things that we can study and then apply to actually just hear God more faithfully. Yeah, yeah. And just last week, Kirk, I think I talked about um, kind of the, how many people come to scripture unconsciously with bad hermeneutics, as in they, they view it, view the Bible as, as a quarry, a place to get, say, principles for business, or like, I'm going to go to the, to the Bible to get principles for, for dating or for parenting and where, where that's not what the Bible is. It's not, it's not like a manual that, that gives those instructions, but we need to understand what it is the Bible is and, and that the authors of, of scripture are trying to do. So, uh, I mean, obviously we can only go get too um, simplistic as, as we kind of help build an understanding of hermeneutics, Ben, but, but where, where would you start today? Um, and explaining like helpful uh, uh, view of hermeneutics and also unhelpful ones. I've already named a few, but, but to kind of build on that. Yeah. Um, so I have been on a bit of a journey with this. And so this is a story towards a method of, uh, at Wheaton, the way that the scriptures were taught was sort of um, a sort of standard evangelical adaptation of higher criticism, which isn't mm. unbelieving. It's still believing um, the message fundamentally. But the idea that we actually have to break all of these pieces of scripture apart and recognize the individual human authors and the individual settings. And so, you know, the sort of even just the way that grammar reveals uh, conviction, like, well, you know, Matthew always blankety blankety blank in his gospel blankety blank as if you know paying attention to the unique human uh, what might be the unique contribution of that single human author uh, and then specifically to then locate you know this is I'm just describing what could be named as like the literal grammatical or historical method right but of um to say well what was happening in the first century you know in Palestine that might suggest you know you get this idea of Matthean community or something or um, or, or even, you know, what, what was just the cultural backdrop reference points when St. Paul's teaching about this and basically breaking apart the scripture into as many pieces as possible and then locating them against their cultural backgrounds and thereby trying to ascertain sort of a single historically located communication. And I mean, one of the things that did me great damage, sorry if there's any um, Wheaton board member, if anyone from Wheaton <laughs> listens to this, but I think actually Wheaton ripped the scriptures out of my hands. I heard multiple mm. times, multiple professors, this book wasn't written for, to you. You know, God can use it to speak to you, but it wasn't written to you. And I fundamentally reject that as a reading mm. premise now. Um, and also even the sort of uh, primary value of a literal grammatical historical method, like <clears throat> that the Lord gave us, and I, by us, I mean the readership of the present in his body, um, these scriptures to be perennially communicative um, and actually substantially independent from their in prompting context. So maybe the most clear, it's maybe a little clearer when we look at like the Old Testament or something like David, when he wrote a Psalm may have had some clear literal referent of kingship in his mind. And yet none of the New Testament authors ever point out like, Oh, isn't this an interesting feature of Bronze Age kingship, right? They always say <laughs> this is about Christ, right? And they, in fact, when they bring up the literal meaning, they actually disavow it. And they say, well, you know, I assure you that about when they quote the psalm that says, you will not let your, see, your holy one see corruption. And they're like, David died. 
this is not about David. This is about Jesus. Um, and so actually the New Testament invites us to read the Old Testament as centrally pointing the, the reader in the present moment to the risen Jesus in all of his, um, you know, his um, being, all of his person, which is, you know, remains perennially, uh, he is the crucified Lord, he is the risen Lord, he's the ascended Lord, and those are all true about him perpetually. And so all of the scripture is supposed to bring us to be present communication about the present Lord. Um, and so um, attention to sort of initial meaning can help hedge us in, maybe it, it can maybe be uh, help defensive against sort of false add-ons, but I actually think we should read the scripture um, more naively than I think some folks will sort of present uh, than we should they say we should which is that like no open it and say lord please speak to me and then read it <laughs> and over time you 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 might take things badly but if you think that it's telling you to go buy a mercedes well ask your older christian brother friend about that and see you know and someone's going to correct you pretty quick you know it's probably not about the mercedes and so you'll learn in christian community you'll learn as the spirit you know the prophecies are so strong in the old testament the spirit himself will be your teacher Right, like we actually have the Holy Spirit to guide us, and is there a liability of like coming up with some crazy interpretation? Sure, but the Lord Himself will correct that if you're actually pursuing Him. Um, so, anyway, so I'm all about kind of what could be called naive reading. Like I, I think actually the Jerusalem Declaration that binds Anglicans to the ACNA nails it. It says to teach the Scriptures in the plain, says so a naive, canonical sense so uh holding up against other scriptures what could be called canon criticism or biblical theology plain and canonical sense respectful of the church's historic consensual teaching and if we have that as a sort of hermeneutic lens beginning with plain just what does it say just spend some time with it and then canonical what else do the bible does the bible say about this topic so you read um go and sell all you have but you should also read uh he who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, now you've got a tension to figure out, and that's the work of biblical theology. And then, okay, well, how do I split some of these tensions? Well, what has been the historic consensual reading of the church? Oh, look, they've actually kind of weighed in. Like some are called to radical monasticism. Not everybody is. And, you know, and you can kind of, that they are the sort of court of appeal for how to interpret the tricky texts. Um, like someone says, John 6 isn't about the Eucharist. And it's like, well, what did the ancient church say? Oh, wait, they all read it as about the Eucharist. <laughs> okay, well, then it's about the Eucharist, you know? Um, okay, sorry, I'm rambling, but it's because it's a topic that you picked that, that I'm very excited. Yeah, about. yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. So yeah. I, what I hear is is you saying that that um, we need to read, um, read scripture, certainly um, as it has been. First, we need to just read it. Yeah. Like, you, Lay people need to read it, yeah. but then they also need to understand how, how it fits in the canon, how, like scripture, interp interpret scripture with scripture, and also uh, in community, not just in, you know, how, how is this understood by my spiritual fathers that are nearby, but also um, the ancient church fathers, like yeah. how, how has this historically been understood? Yeah. Um, which is all super helpful. Um, but uh, as, as far as we understand uh even just like genre um understanding and within genre understanding things like uh just like literary style like things like hyperbole so when you know it says that 
all were coming to Jesus. Is that saying that, is that hyperbole or is that saying that every single person, like trying trying to understand what the language actually means and like, what is, what does that teach about the passage? What's the author trying to say there? Um, Those are all helpful things, but I hear you saying that, let's say looking at a genre, like a letter um, and seeing Paul, the apostle to the church in Corinth um, and look and first understanding that as a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, I hear you saying that that's an unhelpful way to first understand and come at um, uh, scripture. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's the foundation. I think that Paul is writing to the church and he even says at the beginning, right, and to all the saints, you know, like he's, he's spreading it wide. And if you trust in Christ and have been baptized, you're among the saints. So Paul is writing to you. And if there's things, there were things, there were people in Corinth who read that letter who didn't struggle with everything in every chapter, right? Like there were some people like, what? I don't even, I don't even walk by the street where they sell the idol meat. Who, who's that a reference? You know, like, yeah. So, so well, but, not- but again, like you and I, like our context is drastically different. Uh, you know, right. we, we, you know, we are, we have no pressure to, <laughs> we don't have, um, like for us to like sleep with a temple prostitute would be like, <laughs> uh, impo- virtually impossible. Um, and, and right. so, and, but, but to understand like the context it was written to helps us understand what that tells us about the body. Yes. So I'm not saying it's devoid of value. I just don't think it's sort of the foundation stone of hermeneutics. Um, because I think my experience out of my life is that it becomes such a sec- an exercise in the secondary details, in the backdrop, that I'm actually not just listening to what God is communicating to me. And so, for instance, um, you know, I might read, if I read it in the way I'm describing, and I come to the idol meat section or the temple prostitute, well, actually, it doesn't specifically name temple prostitutes, it just calls them prostitutes, right? So yeah. we, re- we know from historical study that, yes, they're yeah. often temple, but, um, you know, pagan temple. But um, there might be chapters where I'm like, man, I don't know how that applies. And fair enough, right? I mean, but then there's other chapters which are perennially applicable. Like, so it's like, you know, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Like, I think actually we have more in common with the people of the past and the settings of the past and the church settings of the past that we kind of create these barriers of distance um, that actually uh, fend the word off rather than um, allow it to cut us, you know, split between bone and marrow. So I think the sort of, in terms of, maybe I'll say it like this, the liabilities and versus the benefits, that are the, 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 the scale tips against, I think, with the sort of literal grammatical method versus just sort of plain naive reading. There's, there's, there are still some liabilities, but I just don't find them as grave in terms of allowing the word to transform us. Okay, as, is, is, is the plain naive reading, is that something, I'm not familiar with that. Is that, is that, is that kind of your word or is that something that you've kind of uh, picked up um, from, from elsewhere? Um, well, plain is from the Jerusalem Declaration. Um, and so that's from there. Um, in terms of calling it naive, that's maybe sort of referencing like a philosophical hermeneutic conversation about sort of the role of like naivete. Like there's the philosopher Paul Ricoeur who talks about sort of striving to attain the second naivete where we actually can encounter the text again. And so I'm maybe pulling that word from that discourse. Um, I, I don't think I've, I've seen, um, maybe it's that some of my Bible teachers were always um, hounding me to say like stop trying to read so naively <laughs> so mm. maybe I've, I've taken an insult and i'm turning mm. to a phrase maybe. Can, can i maybe try to rephrase what i'm hearing and you can yeah. tell me if if this is kind of what you're getting at uh so uh what's the famous alexander pope uh saying um 
drink deeply from the fountain of knowledge or drink not at all, right? So I think um, a lot of Christians have encountered some textual criticism or right, like they, they understand something of genre or whatever. And so um, when we read a passage, um, we, we kind of remember the one journal article we read about first century Palestinian culture or whatever, right? And, um, and, then, and then we think that that historical understanding helps us gain some deeper insight. And in the meantime, we've lost the ability to read it devotionally and see our Lord and Savior um, like staring at us in the, from the text. Is that maybe yeah, what you're getting at? I think that's very well said. Um, and that is exactly the case that most of us, maybe many of the listeners find ourselves in, like having already against our will even just been immersed in a sort sure. of uh, literary grammatical kind of method that has, you know, um, complicated matters. And so then the task is to find the way out to that second naivete. But sort of as someone who I've, I feel like the journey I've been on has been that journey, I, I want to spare future readers the trouble and be like, <laughs> no, no, you don't have to go on this extremely complicated journey to try and like come back to believing in the scriptures. You can just start with believing and just read them and, and then let's just see what happens. And it will surely be better. Than so this. here's an example of this I've encountered in my life, um, yeah. reading the scriptures with my children. Um, I had forgotten the sheer wildness and craziness of the Old Testament. Mm. And now I'm seeing it all over again through my kids' eyes as they're like, I mean, the, the body count, uh, the violence, mm -hmm. the PG-13-ishness of a lot of it, um, that as um, I had taken history courses and kind of read about the Near, a Near East, I had begun to see it through like, a British museum lens instead of enjoying the sheer mm. wild ride aspect of it. Mm. And um, I had to see it again with my children or have them ask me kind of salacious questions about certain passages to be reintroduced with how in some ways entertaining and, and um, wild it is. Mm. Mm. Is, so, that, is that an example of what you're talking about? Um, it's, it sounds like a cousin concept. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. um, I think one of the things that I feel like is missing so much in my own journey with the scriptures is coming to behold them with more reverence. Like in okay. terms of like, this is like, because I think, and, and, and sort of that these, every jot and tittle according to the Lord, mm. like won't you ever pass away. That like every, every record, every set of numerals that list a body count is actually there for a divine communicative purpose. And so I think there's a way in which sort of, even in sort of delighting in the shocking bit, I'm like, well, in, in hearing it as, a, as sort of something interesting and exciting, that's a win. But to still see it, it's like, yeah, but this, what is the Holy Word of God communicating? For this reason, I don't read my children Old Testament stories at all. Oh, okay. Basically <laughs> just hear about Jesus. When they turn teenagers, maybe I'll start reading them some Old Testament. Um, but I think it's because it's complex, like how to hear sure. God's voice in it. Now, there are some great children's adaptations, like the Jesus Storybook Bible. I mean, that stuff, I'll read them. But I'm not going to give them straight those Old Testament to the teenagers. Because um, I think it's hard. If we don't come at it with reverence, it's easy just to see this kind of crazy Quentin Tarantino film, you know, and that's, that's, <laughs> that's not what it is, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's so, something for me to think about. I think my approach has been... Um, as long as the grammar is there in the background, later um, uh, they'll have the ability to make connections. But that's something. Yeah. Something that I, I think that's actually perfectly reasonable. I'm not. Trying, I don't want to come across too dogmatic on that. These are just, <laughs> that's just like a hunch theory of mine. Yours might work out better. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Christopher, you appeared to be clearing your throat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and but yeah. So it doesn't sound like you're dogmatic about not reading the Old Testament because, right. like you said, like we have to trust the Holy Spirit to to help right. guide us. Of course, we all we are also as parents point to Jesus too. We don't just right. read it in it alone. Like here, like this this um you know, this genealogy is, is devotionally uh, <laughs> important to you apart from any kind of guidance as to why that's important. Right. Sure, you, sure. you know, we don't just test the Holy spirit that we don't, we do not put the Lord, our God to the test. Right. Um, but, but what I hear you saying is, is uh, as, as we read, say the gospels um, that, that we ought to be reading it first devotionally. Yes. But we like, for instance, like today's gospel text, we read that first devotionally to say like, what, what's, what is God speaking like what, what, what Jesus did, what is that saying to me today? And then like the cultural context can help, um, give that shape. Like we, like we had a conversation about like that adds significance to it, just to understand the first century I, Greco-Roman idea that children don't have value. Yeah. So, like it sharpens the idea when Jesus says like, unless someone welcomes, uh, this child, you know, yeah. uh, who, who's, <clears throat> it's given significance knowing that that child is is given no value. He says like, no, but in my kingdom, this, this child has value. Um, so you're saying that that's, that's all secondary to that's, the devotional reading. That's my thesis that I'm trying to sell. Yeah. 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 So, so would you um, share, uh, uh, we are running out of time. So can you give us two minutes on inerrancy and, and like why um, the idea of biblical inerrancy is important. Why should we believe that scripture is inerrant when, when um, uh, what scripture says about scripture might, might have like less like second Timothy, Timothy three sixteen, And a lot of people point to, to say like the scriptures God breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So, mm-hmm. to, um, so why do you go so far as to say that scripture is inerrant? Hmm. Um, I think if we give the gravity when we say it's God breathed, <laughs> like if we give that um, even close to the gravity that that word contains, then it, it, it comes from God, and God isn't that God only would tell only tells the truth according to His character, and His you know His commandments forbid us to lie, revealing His own character, and uh, and so trusting that it is actually God breathed. Therefore, it can be trusted. And so for me, uh, I, I'm stressed that not just for me, but I think um, when we say inerrant, simply to say that in everything the Bible asserts to be true is true. There's just, there are no errors in it. And so if it says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, well, then the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, right? If it says, if it says, you know, this or that, like the axe had floated, then the axe had floated. Like, you know, to be credulous of whatever is presented, even if it's difficult or, or hard to comprehend, like even, okay, well, if you get into the nitty gritty, like, it, you know, it says like Jesus was in this city, but then it says he went to this city via this city. That's not the straight route, but to say, no, it's telling the truth and what it says. So he must've done some weird circuitous walk to go from that city to that city via that city. That's like an oxbow lake of a, of a hike, but that's what he must've done because it says that's the city he went to. You know, and to just sort of um, give give full credulity to every claim. Um, Does genre play a role in that? So, like, I'm thinking, for example, about the Canaanite ethnic cleansing, in which we read in um, in Joshua um, that such and such were 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 basically cleansed from the land, and then we encounter that tribe later. Mm. Um, does genre play a role in how we read that? 
like um yeah so no i i, I pay absolutely no respect to genre genre differentiations <laughs> um that's a spicy take i love it <laughs> <laughs> i think it's all an immediate word and genre doesn't actually help us unpack it at all even hyperbole like is actually just truth like it actually is better to chop off your hand than to go to hell. That's not hyperbole. That's just a right. true statement. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That was way worse than chop off hand. <laughs> true statement. So, um, so you know, the, I think when we pay attention, sufficient attention to the details, the problems actually resolve themselves. So Canaanite sometimes means a specific subtribe. Sometimes it's just the name for the group of tribes in the region. And so to say, you can say, you know, the word is used in context. And, and having no other lexical help other than the Bible, most of these will undo themselves of like, to see, to see, like, okay, well, in this case, it must mean all of the local tribe that lived there in AI, who might have been sort of the most, the people usually refer to as Canaanites, like when we say American, it usually means United States, but it can sometimes mean Canadian or Mexican, right, you know, like, and so it's like, okay, so not, you know, not all the people who could be designated Canaanites were wiped out, but the people who we usually refer to as Canaanites, they were all wiped out, and, you know, those sort of, the, the sort of Bible difficulties, but what I found is if we come at it with incredulity, we can always find what we think is a hole in the scripture. If we come up with credulity and patience and prayer, I'm yet to have a problem be unresolved. And it's not going to Bible, Bible help books who have just prayed about it and just looking at the text and sitting with it and looking at other texts in the scriptures. It's like if there's, there's um, ways in which it can then lock it. All of a sudden, there can be a moment of clarity. I've had passages I sat with for years. And I'm like, this doesn't add up. And then all of a sudden, but Lord, it's your word. It has to be true. And at mm-hmm. year four, it's like, oh that's how it adds up you know it's a gift of knowledge um so yeah and what i hear you saying is that is that we have what um everyone would regard as as a an, an agreed upon text you know what i mean it's not like so we have different translations of that text but like yeah. like there, there's a universally accepted like canon of what scripture is right Absolutely. it's not like well the catholics have have like their like where you know James, the second chapter of James is entirely different in the Catholic. No, it's not like that. We've, we've, we, we all are using the same text. And if God wished that we had a different Bible, we would have a different Bible. Right, exactly. Every, and the, the number of books that did, did, are not in the canon, right? That we don't even, right. all the other letters that Paul wrote to Corinth that we just don't have. Sure. You know, like the ones that the Lord didn't speak through him word for word. And, and part of the, you know, inerrancy, the idea of that as, you know, 20th century phenomenologists of language have pointed out, like thought and words are inextricable there is no thought without words like and so if these are if these thoughts are from god then these are the words from god because you alter the word a tiny bit and the thought is a little bit different poetry mm-hmm. can't be paraphrased etc so like yeah. you sort of the, the moment you start knocking those rabbit trail you end up where i am now which is to be just sort of a foaming at the mouth fundamentalist about these things but there kind of isn't a middle ground it's either like you can trust it or you can't and now faith is stronger than intellect and so i think the christian faith of literal grammatical interpreters is actually doing much better things for them than they even realize is actually happening. If taken to its oh. final level, the literal grammatical contextual break apart thing from Wheaton. I mean, I, the, the, if you look at the alumni survey from Wheaton, the number of people who fall into unbelief. In fact, basically the alumni fall into two categories, unbelievers or Anglicans or Catholics. I mean, I'm not <laughs> generalizing, but there's a sense of it's either all true or in the end, eh, why bother? <laughs> Interesting. So, so I, I hear like, uh, like an unspoken idea lurking behind the way you talk about um, inerrancy, inspiration, and then hermeneutics. Um, and, and it sounds like you're saying um, if you have a high view of inspiration, that is the Holy Spirit um, intentionally guided the pen of these authors, 
Um, and God is omniscient and um, sees all of time in a glance, of course he would know that you and I were reading it and, um, and would intend it for you and I, as well as for first century Corinthians. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I, I, you've, I feel very heard and loved. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and um, sadly, I have to dash. Um, for, yes, uh, absolutely. I'm so sorry, I, um, but thank you for letting me share these things in that they're very dear to my heart. And I just say as a testimony, I was so bored with the Bible for so many years and I had no interest to read it. And now I can't wait for every opportunity to read it. And that's a mm. sea change. It took mm. 10 years in the making, but, and I think it's connected to some of these things. So mm. I just, I, I presented to you and to your listeners and uh, it's certainly got its own holes and my own foibles in the midst, but I'm grateful to give it a hearing. Thank you, yeah. Father Ben. In the show yeah. notes, we'll link, uh, link to your, uh, your stuff. Shall we end in prayer? Please. The Lord be with you. And with your and spirit. With your spirit. Oh Lord, uh, let us pray. Oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Mm -hmm. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, mm -hmm. the true bond of peace and of all virtues without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. What a great collect for this discussion. Amen to that. In indeed. <laughs> oh God and Father of all whom the whole heavens adore, let the whole earth also worship you. All nations obey you and all tongues confess and bless you. And men, women, and children everywhere love you and serve you in peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Ben. Next Thank week, Christopher. You. Next week. Thank you.